1935, Franklin D. Roosevelt put his signature on the Social Security Social Security Social Security Act. Hi, this is Eric Zikon. This is one of the craziest people who pulled off the biggest scam in the history of the Social Security Administration. If he couldn't help me, nobody could. I guess he perfected a way to screw the government more efficiently than everybody else did. Everybody who came to see him got their benefits and they got them quickly. I thought he was helping me, but at that time he wasn't doing nothing but really fucking me. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, just being honest. <laughs> Everybody knew Eric Kahn was Mr. Social Security. From FunMeter, I'm James Lee Hernandez. And I'm Brian Lazarte. We're the executive producers and directors behind the new Apple TV Plus documentary series, The Big Con. And yet again as a reminder, all four episodes are available to stream right now on Apple TV Plus where available. And this is The Big Con, the official podcast from Apple TV+, a companion piece to the documentary series of the same name. Well, Brian, it's, uh, it's sad to say, but this is our final episode, and we've covered a lot of ground over the last five weeks. For sure. We have, James. And I can't believe we're here. Episode six. And there is quite a bit more to this story that we're going to get into here including some important updates uh, that took place after our filming completed. Um, but before we get to that, let's dive back into where we left off at the end of the last episode. This is episode six, Reconciliation. On the evening of December 3rd, 2017, Eric Khan was being held in a hotel room in Tegucigalpa while the FBI figured out how to get him back to the United States. Eric's version of what happened that night goes like this. I met with a team which comprised of four Honduran police officers. When the team and I sat down for dinner, the senior member of the team started asking me question after question about money. I said, I don't have any money. He looked at me and said, I'm gonna give you two choices. You can transfer the money to the bank accounts that I will give to you, and you can walk out that door a free man. On the other hand, you can refuse to transfer the money, and you may or may not make it back to the United States alive. Apparently, his second-in-command thought his message needed a non-verbal reinforcement. He locked and loaded his assault rifle and violently slammed it down on the table in front of him. I felt like the Grim Reaper was in the backswing and I was next on the list. Remember though, the FBI special agent Luis Rosa's side is different. He says that Eric had bribed the Honduran agents with 90 million to let him go. We don't know exactly what happened in the hotel room that day between Eric and the agents, but regardless of where the truth lies, here's what happened next from the FBI's perspective. The fact that they, they call me first, build out some trust. However, I didn't want to underestimate Eric Kahn. Luis didn't know if Eric really had that kind of money, but he didn't want to risk it. For reference, $90 million would make someone a billionaire in Honduras. 
if he's trying to bribe people, $90 million, it would be a matter of time before somebody will say yes instead of giving me a call in the middle of the night. I went from being concerned about getting him out of the country. Now I'm concerned is how fast I'm gonna get him out of the country before he can, he's able to do his thing. The problem was Luis was stuck with Eric in Honduras. The airports were still shut down because of the civil unrest with no signs of reopening anytime soon. That would give Eric plenty of time to plan his next move, Luis thought. So he had no choice but to ask for another favor. So I called her buddy, the jiu-jitsu pilot kicked my ass that day, and I, and I told him my problem. Maybe as a mode of negotiation, I promised him I'll let him do a jiu-jitsu move on me in the next training. He told me, listen, I can definitely transport Ericon to the United States. We can use the same plane, the same C-12. So Luis went back to the hotel where Eric was being held. And Eric was still there, and still alive. Luis escorted him through barricades and burning streets to the military plane. Finally, after six months on the run, Eric Khan was going back to Kentucky. But to Luis, Eric didn't seem dour on the ride home. I was in a plane with him for about 10 hours. He didn't fall asleep, he talked the whole trip uh, about every little subject you can imagine. We talk about mythology, <laughs> um, talk about women. Uh, he, he gave me a few pointers that I've chosen not to follow in my life. <laughs> and we talk about prison. He asked me, he was very concerned about life in prison and give maybe a mild admission that what he did was wrong by becoming a fugitive. That was my understanding on, on his remorse or the remorse that he was showing at the time. On December 5th, the FBI and countless news outlets were at the Bluegrass Airport in Lexington, Kentucky, all ready to swarm the plane the second it landed, if it ever did. There was a lot of back and forth on exactly when it would land. Folks had been waiting in the cold for hours and hours as day became night. When the plane finally arrived, Donnie Kidd and Amy Hess were there to greet Eric. I think there was, gosh, probably four or five cars that drove out along the edge of the tarmac to meet the plane. I remember as everybody got out, one or two of the agents was like, come on, you got to go with us, you got to go with us. He had specifically called me out during several of these email exchanges. I wanted him to see me, to make that point. I hung back far enough where we weren't in the camera shots, but where he could see us. I wanted to make sure that the people who had the most skin in the game were plain side to greet him. I also wanted them wearing their FBI raid jackets. Eric stepped out of the plane looking quite a bit thinner than when he left. Reporters' cameras clicked as agents escorted him to a black suburban. Here's an excerpt from the doc series. I remember it was extraordinarily cold that night. Me and several reporters were yelling questions at him. And all he responded with was, it's good to be home. I got the sense that he wasn't cut out for that life like he thought, but 
It was a hell of a ride, for sure. He made it pretty far. Today, I'm pleased to announce that Mr. Khan is in custody. As promised, Mr. Khan will now be held accountable for his actions. The next day, Scott White, one of Eric's defense attorneys, strode over from his office to the federal courthouse for Eric's first appearance. He walked back to the temporary jail cells where Eric was held. So I saw him, I said, what's it feel like? You got your wits about you. And it was just kind of, what do you say? He knew what he was facing at that point. And I certainly wouldn't kid him or rub it in or say, you're a dumbass or anything like that. It was just, it's kind of sad. Scott had been one of Eric's attorneys for four years. If you saw the doc series, you'll remember that Eric claimed Scott encouraged him to go on the run. Scott, of course, said it was all bullshit. But his focus in court that day was what kind of prison time Eric was now looking at. Reporters packed the courtroom for Eric's first appearance. A judge told Eric he was looking at spending twice as long in prison than he was facing before, a total of 27 years. Afterward, Scott was packing up to go back to his office when he heard someone call his name. Hey, White, White, I got a present for you. Scott turned around and recognized an FBI agent he had worked with before. I said, yeah, what the fuck? You gonna indict me? He said, no, nah, no, nah, I wish we could. I said, what do you got? He goes, this box. The agent handed him a box full of Eric's possessions. Scott took it back to his office and opened it up. Inside were ratty clothes, a black duffel bag, and Eric's wallet. We pull all this shit out and we get this wallet and it is thick with cash. And I'm thinking, hey, we're going to eat good tonight, guys. And I said, hey, what's this? And I look in the wallet and I pull out this Pizza Hut mint wrapper. The, the mint's gone. It's just the wrapper. And then it dawns on me. This is the, the what's left of Eric's last meal as a free man. His final dessert as a free man was a Pizza Hut mint. <laughs> and I just burst out laughing. I just said, this is the most fucking screwed up case I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Scott thought about Eric wearing his green prison jumpsuit and shackles earlier that day and suddenly remembered what he looked like the first time he met him, years ago. He had this really unusual tie on, and it was like shimmery and had like these real shiny threads. It was just very unusual. And I remember when I was leaving, I turned and said, I got to tell you, that's a really interesting tie. He said, yeah, he says, this is pretty good. I said, said, yes, I got this in Italy, pure gold. I said, what? Pure gold. I looked in and I says, he says, that's all 14 karat gold through there. I literally remembered that tie he had. And I'm thinking, man, he has brought on a lot of suffering to himself. In 2018, Eric Kahn was sentenced to 27 years in prison and ordered to pay $106 million in restitution. It's Shakespearean in that it is comic and tragic, and there is a protagonist who is so talented and gifted in so many ways, but has the fatal flaw of having no moral compass, none. It wasn't until Eric was arrested that Becky Rose saw the light. 
She had been helping Eric and his attorney prepare legal documents when suddenly she thought, I had been wholly manipulated. I was reading the discovery that the government produced and I was reading the interviews that they had done with Jamie and Melinda and the Jamies and Melindas before them and and before them and before them, there were several. And I realized that I had just filled the slot that they filled before. And I could read those interviews and it could have been me talking. And, And that's when I really kind of came to my senses and was like, oh, wait a minute, you know? But it, it wasn't until then, it was the very end. Eric had made Becky feel like she was the only good one. He had fueled a resentment in Becky towards her former colleagues, Melinda Hicks and Jamie Sloan, by feeding her lies about why they had quit shortly after she started working there. Oh, I look at it now and it just, it's uh, comical. It's, all, it's, it's comical. I believed that he was innocent and that, you know, he didn't do anything. And I mean, in some ways, I still believe some of that, that um, he didn't do anything that other attorneys hadn't done. But I was very committed to my integrity. Becky feared that Eric could turn on her just like he had with Jamie and Melinda. A lot of people were very hurt. Um, I still struggle with it at times. Um, I get mad at him because I think, you know, if it weren't for this dumb stuff, we'd still be up there in that office coming up with real cockamamie plans and schemes to do the next crazy thing we were going to do, you know. We originally connected with Becky Rose in 2019 when she had agreed to sit for an interview on the documentary series. Once we arrived in Kentucky, she stopped returning our calls. We didn't hear back from her again until two years after we were already finished filming. I don't think we realized the effect that Eric had on Becky. When we finally got in touch with her at the end of 2021, she told us she had gone to rehab since we last spoke with her. And now she'd been sober for two years. One of Eric's attorneys that I was very close to, I would call him all the time, every time some big, crazy, chaotic thing happened. And he would say the same thing to me every time. And and, and I think of it still to this day. He would say, Becky, you are strong as new rope. And I think when it's all said and done and the dust has settled, I was one of the very few people that got to just walk away. So, so I survived it. It was a burning house and I survived it. Becky's feelings about Eric are complicated. When he hired her, she went from waiting tables at a local restaurant to traveling the country and attending law conferences. It changed her. Becky grew so much over those years that she kind of felt like she owed him something. Someone asked me in a job interview at one point, did I feel like it was detrimental to me that he takes up such a big space on my resume? But in all honesty, I learned everything from scratch there. And so yeah, it wasn't the most ideal circumstance but I got the experience all the same. And maybe a little more experience than most people get. In trying to reconcile what happened, Becky had to look at everything with fresh eyes, including Sarah Carver and Jennifer Griffith. For the better part of her six years in Eric's office, she hadn't heard anyone say anything nice about either one of them. Well, 
God, this is awful and I hate this and they're gonna hear this and I'm gonna feel so bad. But nobody had anything nice to say about them in the office. They made our lives really hard. You know, or, or that's how we perceived it at the time. But Eric and I, um, we had our pet names for them. Sarah was the Amazon woman from the moon and Jennifer was the troll. The, the humor that Eric and I shared was very juvenile. Turns out, Jennifer and Sarah had their own nickname for Becky. Becky's got real short red hair, and we always referred to her, and please, Becky, do not get mad if you hear this, but we always referred to her as Big Red. After Eric was arrested, Becky saw an article on Facebook that quoted Jennifer, who said she could sleep better at night. That was Becky's chance to respond. I think I, I got some measure of comfort out of being able to say to these other women that they didn't have to lose any sleep anymore. But they'd been through such a vicious time with everyone around them. Then we had Eric and taking the pictures and the stalking, and then you had this social security office over there following every move they made and ostracizing them. And I mean, they had been through some real shit. And I don't know, to be able to reach across the aisle like that and just say, hey, like I know we sat on opposite sides of the courtroom, but you know, we've been through the same storm, just different boats. But that's not how Jennifer took Becky's comment. Which I originally thought was antagonistic. Jennifer ignored the comment, but it piqued Sarah's curiosity. Sarah still had a lot of questions of what went on in Eric's office that she thought Becky might be able to answer. So she sent Becky a message on Facebook. She thought I was crazy. I thought she was flat out insane. After I started messaging her back, but on instant message, and she started responding. And it just went from there. We just started talking back and forth. I think it was her that asked me, can I call you? We spent many, many, many hours on the phone at nighttime, and she was answering a lot of questions. Not long after, Becky went to an Applebee's in Pikeville, Kentucky to meet Sarah in person for the first time since the Senate hearing. Now, previously, they were the Amazon woman from the moon and the troll, but now they are icons. When Sarah Carver saw Becky, she opened her arms and hugged her. The two carried on like they'd been lifelong friends who hadn't seen each other for a while. Just talked about the things like, oh yeah, well the first time I saw you, I thought you were a total bitch. (laughs) You have to laugh about it or you'd cry about it. So we sat there and laughed about it all night. Becky told Sarah stories from her time working for Eric. From funny ones like the time she won him over with the line from Star Trek to more unnerving things like how Eric tasked her with finding out everything he could about Sarah when he found out about the whistleblower case. I have a lot of respect for these women. They stepped out and spoke up in a situation where literally every man around them made their lives hard, every man around. And I have huge respect for them. As for the men in the social security office, one of them got off easy in Becky's opinion. My personal feeling is if, if there was a real villain in the story, it was Andrus. Chief Administrative Law Judge Charlie Andrus, who had worked with Eric to have his employee Sarah Carver followed, pleaded guilty to conspiracy to retaliate against an informant. He was sentenced to six months in prison, 
and served his time before Eric even received his sentence. And I know that he was exceptionally cruel to the whistleblowers. I also know that there were several times that he would reach out to, to Eric, seeking job opportunities and so forth. So he was worried about losing his job. So I, I just always felt like Andrus was a bad character in the story. As we mentioned earlier, Andrus declined to be interviewed. And Judge Doherty pleaded guilty to receiving illegal gratuities. He was sentenced to four years in prison and ordered to pay $93 million in restitution. He died at 83, still in prison, just a few months before his release. In all the chaos, Sarah and Becky found common ground. Since they first met for dinner, they've become friends. Went a long way in, in giving me some kind of closure and, and some kind of understanding about the things that I wouldn't have been able to understand had I not reached out to them. In a way, you could have been on polar opposites, enemies from, yeah. from different countries, and you found peace in this. Absolutely. We have a saying for it, I, I say it all the time, done bun can't be undone. I mean, you throw the buns in the oven and you cook it, you can't get it back to dough. You know, done bun can't be undone. And, and some things can't be undone. And throughout this entire chaotic event that was, you know, Eric Kahn and the Social Security Administration, there are things that it's time they'll never get back, that's time I'll never get back. But to be able to form the friendship that I did with them, it was definitely redeeming for me. That was the start of many trips Sarah would make to see Becky. In April of 2018, about a year after Eric went to prison, Sarah went back again and brought Jennifer. This time, they paid a visit to Eric Kahn's Legoland Law Complex of Trailers. It had been abandoned since Eric went to prison. But Becky still had a key. Walking into the office was like you were a part um, of the rapture. It looked uh, like, like, I mean, it was like people had just been removed from their desks. I thought they would just find some, like the, the little, Eric had a little paperback book that he published or something, and I they could have that. So Eric told me I could have everything in that office. And but so we go, and I'm like, oh, yeah, and take it. This is the file room. And we go back, and it's weird because the gasp of surprise from them. Inside the file room were boxes and boxes full of records from Eric's clients, undisturbed. Records that people whose benefits had been cut off thought had been destroyed. At that time, Khan's claimants were still fighting with the SSA to get their benefits back. It was so organized that we went to the index. You could pull up a person's name. Had the government went in there and had anybody wanted their file back. That's how easy it was. All this time, all these hearings that these people have underwent were set in those file boxes that easy. 
We also knew that those files were in there. And we knew that they were going to get destroyed with the building. Sarah took out her phone and started taking video. Soon after, she sent it to someone she thought could save the records. You could have knocked me over with a feather. Ned Pillersdorf and an army of attorneys had been representing thousands of Khan's clients, including Jeffrey Bentley, who we heard from in episode four. But what about my records? Man, I said, well, they're gone. I can't find Well, that's your problem. Now, that was exactly what the lady in Social Security office told me. That's your problem. You get them. Well, getting those medical records was turning out to be a big problem for Khan's clients. Some doctors hadn't kept the records because they'd either moved or retired. But all along, they were right there in Eric's office. I don't know how much talk there had been about the four-day bonfire, the shredding operation, and the fact that when all hell broke loose and thousands of clients descended on Khan's office, nobody got the first medical record. So I made the assumption that the medical records went up in smoke or in the shredding machine. Combination of every single Khan client I talked to, nobody got a record from Khan. After Ned got the video, he and the other attorneys demanded that the Kentucky Bar Association do something to return the files to the clients. Another round of hearings was around the corner, but months passed and the files still hadn't been returned. About 125 Khan clients went through hearings when their files were 15 miles away in Khan's seasonal office. And I have no doubt that truly disabled people lost their hearings because they did not have access to their files. It's not clear if Khan's clients actually ever got their files, but why they never got them back in the first place is kind of a mystery, especially since the Department of Justice had released some of Eric's assets that they had frozen. So Eric could pay someone to actually do it after he was arrested. If you were around watching this media saturation, you would think he's the champion of the vulnerable, of the less fortunate. And that's bullshit. You know, I like to think about myself that I do what I do because I care about these people. I worry about these people. And that is why I so despise Khan, because he didn't care about these people. Eric Khan cared about Eric Khan, period. When it was all said and done, the DOJ says Khan pocketed about $30 million from his scheme with Judge Doherty, though he was charged with defrauding the government of way more money, $550 million. That figure is based on an estimation of how much money Judge Doherty had doled out to more than 1,800 claimants whose medical records Eric had falsified. But investigators had found that Eric was submitting false medical records to other judges too. So the SSA went after those claimants. In the end, far more con clients were affected than those who initially lost their benefits. The SSA has sent target letters, about 3,800 local folks. Khan had a lot more clients than that, and those folks were fearful as well. So it affects directly 3,800 local folks plus their families. It is fair to say there's probably not a family in Pike, Floyd, Knott, and Letcher County in Mingo, West Virginia. 
who doesn't know somebody or somebody directly connected to this. And then, of course, there is the economic ripple effect. And, and I think more troubling was the effect on these people emotionally. Khan's clients haven't gone unscathed from the criticism. That rings true in the comment section of social media posts about Eric that read, his clients should be in the next cell block. And everyone in Eastern Kentucky knew how Khan did business. You sleep with dogs, you can expect to get fleas. You know, if you Google Eric Khan, you'll see the annex of Khan and comments of Colburn, and you think, well, there was this great criminal conspiracy going on with the former Khan clients, which is a gigantic lie and a myth. And me and my volunteer lawyer team, we've been battling for more than five years to debunk that myth. Ned and the other attorneys haven't had an easy fight to reclaim benefits for Khan's clients. The clients were required by the Social Security Administration to undergo redetermination hearings based on an Inspector General report suggesting the claimants were in on Khan's fraud. Ned waged war against this. On behalf of a client named Amy Jo Hicks, he filed an appeal arguing that Hicks' benefits were wrongly terminated after her redetermination hearing because she wasn't given an opportunity to challenge the government's assertion that the medical evidence submitted in her case was fake. Ned waited months for an answer. On one October evening, he was in his car leaving town to spend the weekend with his daughter when his phone dinged. And I looked down on my cell phone uh, and I saw the Sixth Circuit had rendered Hicks and I, I couldn't read the decision on my cell phone. So I rushed back to the office, ran in, pushed the back door to my office open and knocked my secretary's, almost knocked my secretary's son down. He was like seven. I rushed to the office and then I got the opinion up and immediately on the phone line was one of the great lawyers at Wilma Harrell saying, he was shouting, we won, we won, we won. Ned settled in to read the opinion from United States District Judge Amul Thapar, who Ned says had initially made rulings against Khan's clients. The first sentence was, these clients are being afforded less rights than al-Qaeda terrorists. And what Judge Thapar was talking about, if you go to law school, you'll learn about the Hamdi decision. Hamdi was an al-Qaeda terrorist we captured on the battlefield in Afghanistan. If you're in law school, what the Hamdi decision said, Hamdi said, I want to see and challenge the evidence against me. You're keeping me in prison. I have no hearing. I want to see and hear the evidence against me. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, even an admitted al-Qaeda terrorist has a right to see the evidence against him. Judge Tapar said, why do the Khan clients have any less rights than an al-Qaeda terrorist like Hamdi? Judge Thapar agreed that the Social Security Administration never gave Hicks a chance to dispute that her case was fraudulent because of an overreaching internal policy. When the agency has reason to believe there's fraud, its policy is actually to disregard all records submitted. But the SSA could only prove that templates Khan had used were falsified. Thapar said the SSA's policy was unconstitutional because it put clients in an impossible situation. When we got the astonishing, wonderful opinion by Judge Thapar declaring these hearings unconstitutional, 
he quoted verbatim from the movie Back to the Future. He said, Amy Hicks, my client, would have needed a DeLorean to travel back in time and try to remember who treated her eight, nine years ago. And keep in mind, most of the con clients had significant mental illness. The idea that they would remember who treated them, they had no idea what the hearings were. And it was just one of the many reasons this thing was so rigged against these people. And it really, in my view, showed the total lack of respect the Social Security Administration had for these people. The Hicks decision gave Ned the ignition he needed to keep fighting the Social Security Administration. They keep challenging it. They keep losing. And I would just sit there at hearing after hearing and just let them have it. And I found that during the same time, the local food city had a, a blood pressure monitor. I would go there before the hearing and my blood pressure would be up. And I found that after I lambasted these judges and read them the Hicks decision, my blood pressure actually went down. Since 2015, Ned and other attorneys who volunteered to represent Eric's clients have helped more than a thousand people reclaim their benefits. Hundreds are still waiting for hearings if they even make it to them. Since the claimants have come under fire, more than 70 of them have died. In the summer of 2020, when we went to Eastern Kentucky, we got to spend some time with one of Eric's clients named Vanessa Stapleton, who was featured in the documentary series. When Vanessa was just in her 20s, she had a severe allergic reaction and needed to be resuscitated. When we met her, she was bedridden and speech impaired. Her family told us that Vanessa had been battling for five years to get her benefits back from the SSA, who'd also asked her to pay back $50,000. While we talked to her family, Vanessa laid on the couch, mostly listening, but she chimed in on the important stuff. If you had anything to say to Eric Khan right now, what would it be? Thank you, thank you. <laughs> That little crooked finger there, too. Fuck you, Vanessa said, as she held up her middle finger. He's a bastard. He's a bastard. He's a bastard? Like, that sums it up. (laughs) Now, since we last saw her, Vanessa had been doing better than ever. She wasn't having many seizures, and she was able to take care of herself a bit more. As long as you kept her medicine to her right, her medicine was good. Listen, she was doing so good, she was feeding herself. All that, she's doing that good. That's Vanessa's dad, Poe Stapleton. By summer 2021, Vanessa was still waiting to hear back from the SSA about her benefits. How easy is it to say yay or nay? You know what I'm saying? It ain't that hard. Especially her case, her bed fastened. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> How hard is that? She had all them doctor records and stuff, hospitals, facilities for seven months straight. It's easy to figure out when they tell you bed fastened. In her case, she needed the shape she was in. And if they'd give it to her and stuff, that would have helped her tremendously. On September 29th, Vanessa was at her home with her mom, trying to stay cool. It was in the 80s that day, with high humidity, An awful time for the AC to shut off when her home lost power. As the room got stuffier, 
Vanessa started to overheat and got sick. Without electricity, her medical equipment that could have cleared her airway didn't work. Her mom rushed to the phone to call 911. I come in when the rescue squad was there doing CPR, performing CPR on her and stuff. They're in the floor in the living room there. You know, them doing chest compressions and I just know when her eyes open, I just, I just, I don't know. I just, I just, you know, had a, had a funny gut feeling. You know what I'm saying? You can, you can tell. And then the ambulance finally come and they brought that machine in where they shock your heart back and all that to start you back. And, you know, it didn't do no good or anything. And, you know, it's just, it's hard seeing that stuff. <laughs> Vanessa was 31 when she died. The Stapletons hadn't heard anything from the Social Security Administration. So two months later, they asked for help from Kentucky Congressman Hal Rogers, who had already been advocating for Vanessa and other con clients. Rogers reached out to the SSA and learned that they're trying to send a letter to Vanessa for a while, but the post office kept sending it back. By February 2022, Rogers' office called Poe to tell him they'd received something in the mail about Vanessa's case. I had them at Hal Rogers, his secretary and them, the people who worked there, I had them to open it up and read it to me. And they read it and they said, well, what it is, it's a denial letter. But I'm going to tell you, I already knowed what it was. I knowed it was going to be no. I just knowed. I just, I just knowed because I just had that hunch. If you can't give it to her while she's alive, she's dead now. She don't need it now. Although Poe's family has a small cemetery down the road, Vanessa is buried on the plot of land where she lived with her parents, just a few hundred feet from her trailer, between some poplar trees. Poe says it's where she wanted to be. He sits by the grave as often as possible, but even when he can't. I think about her every day. Every day. But after everything that happened with Eric C. Khan, the SSA, the courts, and losing his daughter, Poe sees a problem that reaches far beyond an individual case. It's an issue with the system itself. Kind of looks broken, be straight honest with you. I can't, I don't really know what to say, just, that's where Congress needs to step in and do something. Still, Poe sees Vanessa's life and how hard she fought every day as an inspiration to everyone affected by a system that leaves so many behind. I hope that this can surely try to just don't give up faith, try to hold on, hang in there. And I'm hoping that, you know, all them clients there can get their disabilities and stuff back to help them because I know they need it. As for the Social Security Administration, we reached out with a list of questions, and no one responded. As far as Becky is concerned, the SSA failed her community. There are people that lost everything. They lost their homes, you know, became homeless. I can't even begin to think of all the devastation. But they were the most marginalized and and just not thought of by the government officials that should have looked after them when it all did blow up. 
in a federal program that should be working for the citizens rather than against them. Now that that coal is becoming a thing of the past, we're still having trouble getting new industry here because there, there's not a way to bring it here. You know, they're not all roads lead to Eastern Kentucky. The Big Con, the official podcast, is an Apple TV podcast produced by FunMeter. And this is the final episode of the podcast series. Thank you so much for sticking around. And don't forget the entire four-part documentary series, The Big Con, is available to stream right now on Apple TV Plus, where available. The show is hosted and executive produced by us. I'm Brian Lazarte. And I'm James Lee Hernandez. Sean Cannon, Boyd Holbrook, Evan Miscogny, and Heather Schrering also executive produced and helped write our episodes. And Boyd Holbrook narrated Eric's manuscript moments. It was produced by Shannon Pence, our amazingly talented co-EP from the documentary series. The show is engineered and sound designed by the team here at FunMeter and mixed by Ben Freer. The music from our show comes from our documentary series and was written by Brian Tyler, Josh Zimmerman, Nate Alexander, and Sarah Trevino. Additional music by Pelman Music and Sound. There are so many people involved in helping make this podcast, and since this is our final episode, we want to take a moment and give a special thanks to all of the contributors who shared their stories. We wouldn't be able to tell this story without them, and we are beyond grateful. We especially want to give a huge shout out to Peter King, who executive produced the series with us and was instrumental in making the podcast. We would also like to acknowledge Heather Schrering and Sean Cannon for their additional research and reporting, as well as Boyd Holbrook, who grew up just minutes away from Eric's Law Complex and gave us valuable insight into the region. Thanks also to Michelle Eigenheer and Yoni Ehrlich. We want to thank the rest of our amazing crew at FunMeter, Matt Kay, our head of production, our post-supervisor, Adam Helfgott, our assistant editors, Eric Dyer and Brandon Brown, our editors from the series, who we've included excerpts from, especially Alan Dusso and Lane Farnham. We'd also like to thank Carly Palmer, who is also a supervising producer on the series, Carly Nelson, and our awesome assistant, Amanda Fernandez-Rockwell, as well as our entire legal team. And of course, everyone at Apple who made this series and podcast possible. An enormous thank you to you all. And remember to make sure to follow on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us. See you later.